Well, in this episode of Newt's World, this is the first in a series of episodes I'll be doing about the road to the 2022 midterms in November, and then probably a couple after that about the outcome and what happened and what it means for next year. I've been through lots of elections. I first began looking at them about 1958. And of course, I participated in a number, losing twice for Congress and then winning 10 times. So I've been looking at these things for a long, long time. This may be the most amazing year of my lifetime because you have a much more mature Republican Party that has grown dramatically from the shell that the party was after Franklin Roosevelt was done, into a really national party, which it was not when I was young. And you have a group of really incompetent people in Biden, Harris, Schumer, and Pelosi. And they are almost certainly going to be totally unacceptable. In fact, there's a poll that just came out in which 52% of the American people wish that Joe Biden would leave because they think his administration is so destructive. And I think if they knew everything they were doing, the number would be even higher. So let me start. And I think this was kind of fun. This came up because a good friend of mine, Barry Castle, wrote me and said that the Cook Report was saying that the probable Republican upside is not as big as some of us say it is in the House. So I went back because I was just curious. If you look at the Cook Report, and it's probably the most famous analytical report about House and Senate races. And they're pretty competent people, but they're Democrats and they have a bias. So if you go back and look at what they said in 2020, it was interesting to me, and I'm just going to share this with you for a minute. They said there were 193 solid Democratic seats and only 153 solid Republican seats. Then they said there are lean Democrat seats and so forth. They have certain likely and lean, and then toss-up. Well, they said there were 36 likely or lean Democratic seats, which means in their mind, the Democrats already were going to probably get 229-seat majority. There were 26 seats that were up for grabs. There were 26 seats that were in the likely or lean Republican category, and 153 that were solid. So they were saying that in a worst case, you could have 179 Republican seats. Well, Instead of that pickup going to the Democrats, in fact, the Republicans gained 15 seats. Now, that means that the Cook Report was off substantially in what it thought would happen. The reason I mention that is because they do have a bias in favor of the Democrats. And here's their initial report for 2022. I'm going to give you comparative numbers now. In 2020, They said there were 193 solid Democratic seats. They now say there are 151 solid Democratic seats. That is a drop of 42 seats on the Democratic side that are solid. They had 36 that were lean or likely. Now they have 32 that are lean or likely. Now, that means that they're really talking about potentially a Democratic Party at 180 some seats. On the other hand, where they thought last time there were 153 solid Republican seats, they now think there are 166 solid Republican seats. 
And where they thought there were 26 lean or likely, they now think there are 17. Which means that just taking those, they already have the Republicans at 183 seats. There are 23 seats they list as a toss-up. Now, I think that that's actually wrong. I think that it is, in fact, likely that you are going to see the Republicans pick up far more seats than Charlie Cook thinks they will. And I'm going to walk you through why I think that. I will say also that they currently believe that the Senate is likely to be close to 50-50, which I think is very, very unlikely. I think that we're much more likely to pick up the Senate than they're suggesting. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, I'll give you my standard rule. I'm amused by polls. I'm interested in polls. I study polls constantly, and I have now for almost 60 years. But what I really look for is what happens when people vote. And the reason is you're sitting at home, you get a call or you get an email, whatever technique the pollster's using, and you give them your opinion. First of all, you haven't quite thought about it. Second, that doesn't tell me if you're going to get up off your chair and go vote. So what I want to know is, How many people are motivated to vote? And the only way in the end you really know that is when they vote. So, for example, this week in Norman, Oklahoma, site of the University of Oklahoma, normally one of the few semi-blue spots in all of Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a very, very Republican state. The mayor was defeated. Now, the Democratic mayor was defeated. Why? Because they had mandatory masks and They had cut the police force by a million dollars and were seen as anti-police and pro-criminal. And they got wiped out by a Republican. So Norman, Oklahoma, home of the University of Oklahoma, now has a Republican mayor. Well, let's look north. This is all happening this week, by the way. You look north and in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for the first time that we are aware of in history, A Republican won the county executive in Kenosha. And guess what the issue was again? It was defunding the police. Because people in a lot of these places are sick and tired of being scared. They're sick and tired of George Soros funding people who are pro-criminal and anti-victim. And they want somebody to put the victims first. When you look around the country, in race after race, we're beginning to see that. There's a second thing going on that's fascinating. There's an article that came out today. In fact, Rana Romney McDaniel, the Republican National Committee chair, just sent me the article from Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania this year, four times as many Democrats are switching to Republican as Republicans who are switching to Democrat. The Democrats used to have a huge lead in registration, and Republicans had to get all the independents plus the Republicans to offset the Democrats. Well, that lead is shrinking. Even more amazing, a few years ago, there were 800,000 more Democrats in Florida than Republicans. This year, there are 100,000 more Republicans than Democrats. That's a swing of 900,000 votes in one state. So when you start looking around the country, you begin to realize not only are Republicans winning special elections and local elections in places that are historically Democrat, but people are moving with their feet. They're saying, hey, I don't want to be one of those. Of course, they're moving in two ways. They're leaving New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, and California, 
and they're moving to red states so that the mayor of New York actually was tacking Florida. And nobody can quite explain to the mayor of New York that if you take New York taxes and New York crime rates, guess what? Florida is just plain better. You're less likely to be mugged and more likely to keep your money. So that's a pretty good combination. Plus, the weather's better. But that's happening in Texas. People are leaving California to move to Texas in huge numbers. And so you're seeing a shift in the weight of the country away from the most democratic areas to Republican areas. You're seeing a shift inside the states away from the Democratic Party towards the Republican Party. Now, these are real things. I mean, this is not some poll or some theoretical essay in a news magazine. These are numbers on the ground that are showing very dramatic changes. Why is this happening? Well, I have a very strong bias. I'm a conservative. I've been around a good while. My bias is that the Democrats have become crazy. Not just they become radical, not just they become liberal, they become crazy. I mean, for example, how can you propose, and this is the estimate of Biden's Secretary of Homeland Security, that they're going to follow a policy which will lead to 18,000 people illegally coming into the U.S. every day. That means you would add the city of Atlanta every month, 12 new Atlantas, all of them illegal. Now, the vast majority of Americans think that's nuts. In fact, Ballotpedia, which is a very interesting website I recommend for people who want to track this stuff, Ballotpedia reported today that 66% of the American people believe we should not pay anything. There should be no government funding for illegal immigrants. Well, first of all, that'd be a nice step towards balancing the budget. It would also be a nice step towards saying to people, don't come to America illegally. It would cause chaos. I think something like 22% of the country think that we should, in fact, give money to illegal immigrants. Meanwhile, we learned from Jen Psaki that the Biden administration and its infinite wisdom is giving smartphones to illegal immigrants. Now, you're a typical teenager. You've always wanted a smartphone. Your parents won't give you one. Your government is giving a smartphone to people who are illegal. And her reasoning was, well, we want to keep track of them. And Peter Ducey of Fox said to her, can't they just throw them away? And you know what's going to happen. They're going to sell them. The number of drug dealers in America who would be glad to meet their next illegal and get a smartphone is amazing. have a Biden administration, which on the price of gasoline is nuts. They're very anti-American energy. On the price of food is nuts. And by the way, food will become a bigger issue by August and September than gasoline. The impact of the war in Ukraine on cutting off Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports, the impact of Russian fertilizer exports being cut off, which is going to affect Brazil, it's going to affect Western Australia, it's going to affect India and China. I mean, we have a food problem building that in poor countries is going to mean people starve to death. And in rich countries, is going to mean people pay a lot more money for food. I have somebody on our team here who has two kids. He currently will not buy steak unless it's on special because it just costs too much to feed the family. 
And this is not something he thought about a year ago. So what you have is a country which is looking around thinking, does this work? And then, of course, you have Biden. I was on Fox News, America's newsroom, and they surprised me by sharing a video of Joe Biden standing behind Barack Obama. And, I mean, it's pathetic. It's like your grandfather kind of confused at the Thanksgiving lunch, not sure where he's supposed to stand or sit, and wanting to talk to somebody. Meanwhile, Obama looks like he's a real president. You know, he's younger. He smiles well. He's very self-confident. Biden reverts to being the vice president in the shadow of the president. And they wanted me to comment on this video. I didn't know what to say. I mean, you got a president who's a doofus. I mean, this is a commander in chief who's sort of whacked out. And by the way, I think all of our European and Asian allies know it. I think when they meet him, they think, oh my God, this is the leader of the United States. I mean, I've been told this by a friend of mine who has very, very good ties in Europe, who just said he keeps talking to European government officials who go, none of us are going to take Biden seriously. And by the way, Kamala Harris is so much worse than Biden that no one should hope that Biden leaves and she stays. She may be the dumbest person ever elected vice president, and she shows it routinely. So you've got at the very core of the Democratic Party, two non-leaders who are each in their own unique way pathetic. You have a performance collapse, and then you have genuine issue differences. I mean, the American people are not all that excited by the transgender flag flying in front of Health and Human Services building in Washington. They're not all that excited about learning that third graders should be taught that they have a right to change their sex. They're not all that excited by being told that you must be a racist. Even if you're not a racist, it's a sign you're really a racist. In fact, you're so much of a racist, you can't admit to yourself how much of a racist you are. Well, the average person just thinks that's hogwash. And they don't want their children being propagandized. They'd like them to learn how to read and write and do arithmetic and actually have usable skills as opposed to being brainwashed by some left-wing cuckoo. So all of this is swirling around. And what I think it leads to is a Democratic Party that is basically dazed, not at all sure what's going on. Put yourself in the shoes of a Democratic member. You have an aging Speaker of the House who at times is a little bit whacked. By the way, the top three House Democrats combined age takes you back to 1777. That's how old they collectively are. They average about 20 or 25 years older than the Republican leaders. And then Schumer's over there, smiling cheerfully as he gets very little accomplished. And you're trying to understand what's going on. And for example, in real clear politics, you learn that President Biden's approval rating is 41.5% positive, 53.5% disapprove. That's an average of his number of polls. Pew Research found on a March 24th poll that 71% of Republican voters say their vote for Congress is a vote against Biden. Only 46% of Democrats say their vote for Congress is for Biden. The economy is clearly the top issue, although among Democrats it's actually health care. But remember, as inflation goes up, everybody gets affected. I filled up Costa's car last night, and it cost $90. Now, it used to cost, I think, about 55 People notice this. You go to the grocery store, everything's more expensive. So it's a very, very interesting moment. 
31 House Democrats have already announced they're retiring, which is the most since 1992 when 41 Democrats left. Only 15 House Republicans are not seeking re-election, which, by the way, includes four of the 10 who voted to impeach President Trump. Only six senators have said they aren't running for re-election, five Republicans and one Democrat, which makes the Senate a little bit more complicated and a little bit more difficult. The Republican National Committee is just doing an astonishing job. They've already raised $188 million so far in this cycle. They have about $45.5 million on hand. They are two generations ahead of where we were in the 1990s. And I was so impressed by what a great job they're doing. At the same time, the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee keeps expanding their list. They're now up to 72 Democrats that they're targeting. 12 of them are in Trump districts that he carried in 2020. 11 were carried narrowly by Biden, 5% or less. 33 are in Biden districts where he got 10% or more. Now, why would you do that? Well, I call it the Ed Doer Jr. effect. Ed Dewar Jr. was an independent truck driver who wanted to get a concealed carry permit, went to the state office, filed, had a perfectly good record, and the bureaucrats wouldn't give him a permit. So he got really mad and decided he would run against the state Senate president who was in his district. Now, the state Senate president was a Democrat who had won a $17 million race four years ago. So he was considered very solid. He was actually considered the second most powerful Democrat in New Jersey. Ed Doerr raised $2,300 against a guy who'd been in a $17 million race. So on the surface, you would think Ed Doerr didn't have a chance. Well, if the race had been, are you for or against Ed Doerr Jr., he'd have lost. But what happened was voters walked in, looked at the Senate Democratic president's name, and said, not him. And if you said not him, the only other choice was Ed Doerr Jr. So he won. Now, I've been through this before. What you're building out there is a tsunami. Somebody yesterday said to me, oh, you should be much more reasonable. Don't be predicting large numbers, etc. And I said, well, you know, in 1994, we defeated Danny Rostenkowski, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, in downtown Chicago with a totally unknown candidate. We defeated the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Houston suburbs. We defeated the Speaker of the House in Spokane, Washington. No expert would have told us in 1994 that we were going to win those three races. But once you start into a tsunami, you just don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know who's vulnerable. So my battle cry has been, run people everywhere. Don't just target what you think will work target everything, and you may get some breaks you don't expect. Now, you heard Hillary Clinton recently offer the Democrats advice. They need to get their message better. And you've heard President Obama offer Democrats his advice. They've got to get their message better. Let me first of all point out that when Hillary Clinton's husband had been in office two years, we won control of the House for the first time in 40 years, and we picked up 53 seats. When Barack Obama had been in office for two years, 
we picked up 64 seats in a campaign John Boehner led in which the battle cry was, where are the jobs? Now think about that. The Democrats are getting advice from two losers who proved in the past that they had not got a clue how to win off your elections, but they're the best they got going right now. So I don't know, because we're a much bigger party now, and therefore we've already picked up 15 seats last time, I don't know that we're going to pick up 50 or 60 seats. It is possible that we could pick up 50 or 60 seats, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it. I'd bet a pretty good bit of money on 25 or 30. And remember, at 35 seats, given where they are right now, you end up with the largest Republican majority since 1920. And I think that's very likely. I'd be more likely to think they'll get 35 plus than that they'll be under 35. Now, in that setting, there are a couple of other things going on that are fascinating. When you start getting this kind of a tsunami, all of a sudden, there are races, for example, we have a very attractive candidate in Washington state, and I think she has a real chance of winning. A good friend of mine, Adam Laxalt, former attorney general for Nevada, is already ahead 47-40 in Nevada for the U.S. Senate. And by the way, we may pick up every single House seat in Nevada because the state has suddenly decided that the Democrats are just too expensive. They can't deal with them. There's an outside shot that we're going to win in Colorado. I think we probably will win in Arizona because the scale of the damage being done by illegal immigration in Arizona is so great that I think that it makes it very, very hard for the Democratic senator to survive. Similarly, the weakest Democratic senator is in New Hampshire. We have a real shot at winning in New Hampshire. I spent three hours last week with Herschel Walker, who is very impressive, much smarter than people think he is a great competitor, a good businessman, has a great story to tell. And I think Herschel Walker is going to take that seat back to the Republicans in Georgia. So you start looking around, you begin to realize we could have a very, very good night. I think we'll keep all of the Republican seats that have retired. I think we're going to win Pennsylvania. We're going to win Ohio, to give you two examples. I think Ron Johnson will get reelected in Wisconsin, where, by the way, we had a lot of victories in Wisconsin this week for school board and local government. I think Ron's got to feel very good about how Wisconsin is coming together. I think that Rick Scott is doing a great job as the chair of the senatorial committee. Tom Emmer's doing an amazing job as the chairman of the House committee. And I think that you're very likely to have Kevin McCarthy as speaker next year and Mitch McConnell as the majority leader in the Senate, which will be pretty remarkable. I was very fortunate to take part recently in the Congressional Institute's House Republican Issues Conference in Florida. They had about 180 House members there. And I listened to the leadership give their report on what their plans are. They have a very methodical plan, much more sophisticated than we had with the contract with America. They're going to run a very positive campaign, a very issue-oriented campaign. And they've got just a ton of good issues that are likely to, I think, attract an amazing number of people to the Republican Party and make them feel very good about voting Republican. So I would say I don't think you can relax and assume you can coast to victory. I think we have to campaign every single day. I think we have to take advantage of every opportunity that comes up to fight over issues and to push the reality of how badly the Democrats are weakening America, bankrupting American families, 
following policies whose values are radically different than most Americans. But I think if we will do that, if we just keep our shoulder to the wheel, keep pushing, I think the odds are that we're going to win one of the great historic victories of all time. And I think that that will be something that will be sort of remarkable to watch. Now, in that setting, I think you should watch carefully what happens over the next few months, particularly as it relates to inflation, to the price of oil and gasoline. And remember, when inflation happens with oil and gasoline and diesel fuel, every truck that delivers products is charging more because they have to, because they have to pay more for their fuel. Fertilizer comes directly out of petroleum, costs more. A good friend of mine runs a farm in Indiana. Their cost structure this year is up 84%. Now, they're going to pass that on. It's going to show up in the grocery store. And I think you're going to see again and again, as we go through the year, I think that it's going to get worse, not better. And the Federal Reserve is going to have the following tough decision. If they decide to fight inflation, because the left believes in demand-side economics. Now, I want to take one minute and just walk you through this because it's central to what's going on. Demand-side economics basically says that you really shape things by shaping the demand. So if you have too much inflation, which is more dollars available than goods and services, what you want to do is get people to hunker down and spend less. And the way you do that is you raise the interest rates, which then turns housing, for example, into a bubble convinces people not to buy a car, etc. And so the normal pattern of demand-side economics is, in order to stop inflation, you create a recession. Well, that's what Jimmy Carter ended up doing, but he was caught because the recession occurred faster than the inflation came down. So they had what they called stagflation, which was, you're getting hit in your pocketbook by the cost of everything, at the same time, you're not putting anything into your pocketbook because you just got laid off. And so it was that level of double pain where if you added the inflation rate and the unemployment rate, they called it the misery index. And that was one of the keys to Ronald Reagan's amazing victory. He actually defeated Carter by a larger electoral vote margin than any incumbent president in history. And that's because people were getting hit both ways. Supply side economics, which is what Ronald Reagan ran on and what Art Laffer and Jack Kemp and Jude Winiski and Larry Kudlow and I worked on all through the late 70s. Supply side economics says what you want to do is increase the supply. So if there's too much money and you pump a lot more oil, the oil basically absorbs the money. The inflation rate comes down because there are more goodies. You want to increase the total production of wheat or cows or chicken or whatever. You want to increase the production of automobiles. So by increasing the supply side, you mop up the inflation with happiness. People are able to buy more goods. They're able to keep their jobs. You don't get a recession. So Reagan ended up launching 30 years of prosperity. I mean, it was an amazing achievement. Nobody on the left learned anything. One of the few people on the left who did is Larry Summers, former president of Harvard, former secretary of the treasury. And Summers has written several articles saying to his own party, he's a Democrat, and he said to his own party, what you're doing is crazy. Every time you increase spending, you're increasing the inflation rate. You're presently going to stumble into, out of desperation, having to raise interest rates dramatically. 
when you raise the interest rates dramatically, you're going to cause a significant recession. The longer you go and the higher the inflation rate, the more you're going to have to raise interest rates, the bigger the recession. So they're likely to be stumbling into pain this year, having a substantial recession in 2023, at which point I don't see how Joe Biden can run for re-election. The Democrats will dump him and make him a one-term president. And I think it's all just going to be an amazing mess. Keep looking at the inflation rate. Keep looking at the price of gasoline and the price of food. Keep looking at the disaster on the border. Watch carefully what's happening with Ukraine, which is really extraordinarily dangerous and is the one place that could change everything. Because if we mishandle it badly enough, Putin might use nuclear weapons. And we have no idea what the world would be like if he began using tactical nuclear weapons. So there are a lot of things out there that could be concerned about. The good news is help is on the way. The Republicans are almost certainly going to win a stunning historic victory. And the world is going to be dramatically different after January 3rd. And I think dramatically better from the standpoint of those of us who have conservative values and who actually love classic America and love the idea of the country we've become and the degree to which we have freedom, the rule of law, and the right of everyone to pursue happiness as they were endowed by their creator. So I hope this gives you an opening sense of it. We're going to do a series of these, Road to the Midterms, and we'll catch you up on what's happening and how it's happening as the year evolves. I think it's going to be one of the great elections of our lifetime and one that you're going to want to really pay attention to. And I hope as a citizen, you're going to decide you want to be involved because this is a moment for citizens to reclaim their country. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Good evening, and boy, do we have a special episode today. As you're likely already aware, there's an organization in this country called True the Vote, which has been, since the year 2020, investigating the ballot harvesting operations, the illegal ballot harvesting operations, which took place across at least six different states during the presidential election. And using their methodology of tracing cell phone ping data surrounding drop boxes, reviewing millions of minutes of surveillance footage, and then actually interviewing the ballot harvesters themselves, they were able to determine that approximately 4.8 million ballots were likely submitted through the illegal use of ballot drop boxes through ballot harvesters. That's their official estimate after a two-year-long investigation, and they have in hand all of the evidence to back up their claims. And today, we had the unique opportunity to speak with the founder of True the Vote, Ms. Catherine Engelbright. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a lot of our viewers are big fans of True the Vote's work. I've been following it closely, in fact, Two of last week's episodes were devoted to your work in Wisconsin and Georgia. Let's start uh, with your work post-2020 in Wisconsin. So recently you had um, a hearing at the Wisconsin state, uh, state legislature. Can you tell us what you presented in that hearing with your report? Absolutely. We studied Milwaukee County specifically 
and then uh, tangentially Green Bay or, or Brown County and Racine counties. And, and what we were looking at was what we uh, believe is, is the proof of exploitation of ballot drop boxes, the privately funded uh, CTCL money, Mark Zuckerberg money, ballot drop boxes. And what we presented in the hearing was uh, laying out the research um, of, those, of those specific jurisdictions in which we geofenced around the privately funded drop boxes and then monitored how many individual times the same device went to that drop box and then from that formed patterns of life and, and presented that to the committee by way of, of help, hopefully helping them uh, achieve some, some solid legislation that prevents those drop boxes from being used in the future. So I, I want to back up a little bit. That was when I first read the methodology that you used. I just I was blown away. I thought that was such a brilliant idea. Where did you get that idea to use the cell phone ping data from? Well, we were aware that such data exists, um, and it's it's I mean it's used routinely in law enforcement. It's uh, used increasingly in political campaigns, and um, we felt like given the, the 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 fog around everything that was happening in the election, it was it was a path that um, necessarily left a, a trace, left a track. And so um, we went for it. Actually, another question I had is, how long did it take you to, to map out that data? Because you, from your report, I, said, I think you uh, wrote that you had about 10 trillion uh, individual pings of data. So how long did it actually take you, even within that one Milwaukee area, to, to trace people's movements? How long? It, it takes months and months first to evaluate i mean because it's a it's a series of sifts right so you have to figure out um what the population pool looks like how many people or devices i should say went uh to the dropbox to begin with and then you begin to work backwards from that because you don't want to catch people in the in the evaluation that went you know a number that we would conceivably consider to be normal so uh it took months and um the what you're left with, though, at the end of it, is a is is something that is akin to DNA. It is so exacting, and mm -hmm. um, shines a big light on what's happening inside of our elections. And so, within the Milwaukee area, what did you actually find once you had that data in hand? Um, from memory, we found 202, I believe, um, individuals who went to drop boxes more than, I believe, 10 times. And you have to forgive me because since we presented in, in Wisconsin, we've, we've gone on to present in um, Pennsylvania and then in Arizona, so the numbers kind of run together. But um, you know, when you think about the, the data sifts that we went through, the, the groups that we ended up identifying, and we called them mules because we, frankly, we began to use sort of uh, cartel terminology, stash houses and drop points and mules, and, and, and the mules, the, their pattern of life was so distinct from anybody else in the population. They, they followed a, a routes that they did not follow when early election or early voting was not in play. Uh, they went at night. I mean, they had all the earmarks, all the characteristics of something uh, that, was out, that was aberrant. Um, mm. Hundreds of people going thousands of times. Unfortunately, Wisconsin, uh, even though they told uh, the, the people of the state that they had eyes on the drop boxes and that they were using surveillance video that that was apparently not true we certainly couldn't get it if it was uh, so we have no way of threading it back but what we have been able to find in other states where the video was available is in fact threading that that data that that geospatial data together with the video data um, 
revealed needles in haystacks never before seen of people ballot trafficking. Now, Catherine, my next question, and probably what everyone else who's watching this interview is wondering as well, is when exactly did... Sorry. What's this? Roman, it's me. Of course it's secure, because we use the Secure app, which is the sponsor of today's episode, as well as an awesome email and message service provider that actually cares about your privacy. Now listen, it's no big secret that our data is being mined and remined all the time. In fact, there was a recent study that was published in the year 2020, which found that 155 million Americans, likely including you and me, have suffered some form of data breach. And frankly, that's only what's publicly known. However, all those past problems with privacy issues and data mining, well, that can be an issue of the past because moving forward, you can use the Secure app, which both your messages, your emails, and your phone calls can remain private. That's because they have their servers and their data centers located in Switzerland instead of in the US or China or Russia. And why does that matter? Because Switzerland has the strictest data privacy laws in the entire world and they are not subject to the intrusive Cloud app. Now, what I love the most about the Secure app is that they don't collect my data, they don't mine my data, they don't mine the data and phone numbers of my friends and family. Everything is private. And best of all, at least in my opinion, this does not work with your big tech email provider just because it is not secure. And so, and so check it out. You can head on over to secure.com and if you use promo code Roman, you can get 25% off. And frankly, their rates are not even that expensive. It only starts with $5 for the messenger and $10 for the email and messenger combo. And best of all, they offer a seven day free trial. Catherine, when you went to the different um, uh, election officials in the state of Wisconsin and you asked for the surveillance data for the drop boxes, what did they say to you? Because from my understanding, they actually have to have that data on file by law. So what did they come back to you with? Well, in, in Wisconsin, they came back to us uh, saying that no records exist. Now, oh. what we saw, um, and, and that leads to question, you know, does that mean they never existed? Does it mean that they've been erased? Um, you know, but the scope of our research was so broad that we, in certain areas, didn't drill down as, as deeply as we might have liked to. Um, and so that's sort of where we left that question. What, what I can tell you about um, just sort of a, the broad brushstroke is that the, the drop boxes were so um, poorly regulated, uh, the, the processes for surveillance or for security were so poorly drawn that states were, were quick to discard that video. And even though, to your point, federal law requires that you're supposed to hold on to all election artifacts for 22 months, that simply didn't happen. I mean, I think the one word that characterizes the 2020 election was lawless. It, it was just a free-for-all and, uh, and something that we really have to get control of because it's out of hand. So in your report, I remember that you mentioned uh, in several states, but let's stick to Wisconsin, that those ballot mules made at least eight, I believe you said eight trips each to a certain NGO. Uh, was, let me ask you this, what NGO was it? Can you, can you reveal that fact? I think in Wisconsin there were six NGOs, different NGOs. Um, we are not disclosing the names, and here's why. Because the minute that we do that, um, it becomes fodder for all manner of lawsuits. And the goal here is to, is to turn this information over to law enforcement or to the appropriate authorities. And we're giving those, you know, in, in the case of Georgia, where we have active investigations going, they, are, they have access to everything. They have all the names, they have all the information that we have, and then they can choose what to do with it. Our goal is to present this information and to encourage those who have the authority 
to do something about it to actually do something. But I'll say this, the names are, are names you, you would expect. Mm. Uh, let me ask you this, maybe without revealing those names, is it the same NGOs throughout the different states or is it different NGOs? Great question. Uh, there are, uh, we, we see both. We see individual, um, individually operating NGOs, so just state specific, but then there is um, uh, one in particular that is uh, interstate, it's actually international for that matter, uh, but has um, satellite outposts all over and they are consistently uh, caught up in, in this grift. Wow. So l let's move on over to Georgia, which you mentioned has gotten, I believe, the, the furthest in, along in the different states that you work. Now, if you would like to watch the uncensored version of that entire interview, you can do so over on Epic TV, which is our awesome no censorship video platform. Because you see, not only has YouTube demonetized our channel entirely on this platform, but also we are walking a fine line when we talk about the subjects that actually affect the future of this country, like, for instance, illegal ballot harvesting. It really feels like walking a tightrope because no matter how fact-based we are, well, the decision to censor us and perhaps even take down our channel in its entirety, well, that's in the hands of some young Silicon Valley latte-sipping 20-year-old who might just take down our video or even our entire channel because he or she doesn't agree with the content. That is just the reality in this country right now. So that's exactly why we are building out a new platform where we can publish the stories and the interviews that are vitally important to this nation without fear of deplatforming and without having to self-censor. And frankly, everyone who subscribes to Epic TV is directly making the journalism that we do here at the Epic Times possible. So I hope you check it out. Besides our channel, there's a ton of other phenomenal content over on Epic TV, including different shows, different movies, different documentaries, and many, many interviews that I'm sure you will love as well. The link to Epic TV will be right there down in the description box below this video. And as I mentioned before, if you use the promo code Roman, you can get a 14-day free trial. So try it out for two weeks to see if you like it. I hope that you do, and I hope that you continue your subscription forever longer. Then until next time, I'm your host, Roman from the Epic Times. Stay informed and stay free.